Good morning, church. We are grateful that you're here with us. If you're a guest with us at Stone Point, we're glad that you've taken the time to uh, hang out with us this morning. We want to welcome you, not only to the Wills Point campus, but also to those that are joining us uh, in Edgewood, uh, as well as those that are joining us online. We're grateful that you're here. If you are a first-time guest with us, uh, we uh, hope that today uh, is well worth your time and uh, encourage you to stop by our connection point on either campus and uh, get hooked up with a free t-shirt. Always got to take advantage of that. If nothing else, it'd be great to mow your yard in, Okay. Uh, we are uh, in this series called uh, Upside Down, and this is week eight of this series. And if, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me in Matthew chapter five as we begin to kind of recount some of those. If you're turning there, I will also want you to go back with me real quick before you get there, uh, just to the days of high school, okay? Now, for some of you, uh, the days of high school are a long time ago, okay? Uh, I don't go back uh, too far, uh, and so let's just kind of start like 70s. I mean, 70s, you got all things denim, you got corduroy, y'all remember that back in the 70s? You got bell bottoms, you know, bell tops, anything that could flare out, y'all had that. Disco parties, Lots of other things that we won't talk about here, okay, uh, happened in the 70s. Um, and then the 80s, you remember the 80s? Uh, 80s, I mean, you had, uh, you know, you had high-top haircuts, uh, you had um, jams, everything neon back in the day, you remember that? Um, you had tons of stuff kind of going on. Uh, you had um, the 90s, you had flannel, if you remember flannel, uh, everything flannel. Uh, you, you had, um, man, gerbos. Tommy Hilfiger, y'all remember all that? Some of y'all, you're like, God. Oh, yeah. So here's the deal. If you go back to high school and all those days, also I want you to think about uh, some of the things that were important to us back then. I mean, you, you had things like uh, most beautiful, you know, and you would all, always award people at the end of the year. You're most beautiful, most handsome, most courteous, most likely to win a lottery ticket and forget that they had the ticket. Y'all remember that guy? Okay, I do. He's sitting in here on the Wills Point campus right now. I'm sure you have one at Edgewood campus. Uh, you've got um, most likely to become president, right? You have um, most friendly, most likely to succeed, all these different awards. You know, what I was thinking about, though, is you never had an award that was like most pure in heart. You never had most, you know, poor in spirit. You never had the one who was most likely to be the peacemaker. You never had that. Like you, it was all these things that, you know, that in a sense brought about some sort of trait in us that we thought was really good. Like, but the, the challenge is Jesus takes our thinking and he kind of flips it upside down. And he goes, hey, you might have a standard here, but what would it look like if you live for this standard? And so the standards that Jesus were talking about, you would find in Matthew chapter five are called the Beatitudes. And he's beginning this sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, most famous sermon he's ever preached. Uh, it was three chapters long, Matthew chapter five, six, and seven. It's the first book of the New Testament. And Jesus begin to unpack these things and he says these different statements. So I just want to read them with you so that we can kind of real quickly uh, remember what he said. In verse two of Matthew chapter five, uh, Jesus talking to his, his uh, disciples and those who have followed him, uh, I believe it to be a multitude of people. Uh, and he says, verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse four, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And then in verse 10, it says, and blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when you when others revile you or persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so Jesus is, is talking to a, a group of people. Some of them would have been called Jews or Judaizers. They were what you would call zealots. They were zealous for God. They were Hesed, loyal Jews. It means that they loved God and they wanted to keep all the commands. They wanted to do everything they could to be right, and not only in their eyes, but in God's eyes. But Jesus is saying things in the Sermon of the Mount. He goes, hey, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But he goes, if you've ever looked on a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. And he takes the standard in which every Jew would have said, hey, this was a good standard. And he, in a sense, maximizes it. He takes it to another level. He flips it upside down on them. And so as Jesus is talking about uh, the, these beatitudes, he's basically saying, hey, blessed is the poor in spirit. Hey, blessed is the one who recognized they're a sinner. Blessed are the one who they realize they have a need for God. They're a beggar. And he says, blessed are the ones who mourn, who are convicted over their sin problem, for they shall begin to inherit the kingdom of God. They can begin to see who God is. And he begins to walk through this list. And the first four all deal with the relationship to God. He said, blessed are the meek, the ones who are willing to be tamed, to willing to be controlled or even bridled. It's probably the best idea. He goes, for they... shall uh, inherit the earth. And he goes, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst after God for they're gonna find satisfaction. And so as he's walking through these, he's talking about the relationship that man would have to God. He goes, hey, if you recognize you're a sinner, you recognize that God can come and he can meet your need, that religion is about working your way to God, but a relationship to Jesus is about him working his way down to us. He goes, now you can begin to hunger and thirst after his righteousness and you will have satisfaction meaning that salvation only comes to those who realize that in their depravity, they need God. Salvation can never find the heart of the person who thinks they have it all together or is, in a sense, trying to be religious in what they do in their life. Religion says, hey, I need to work my way to God. I got to do better. I got to go to church more. I got to give more. And you're always looking at different things. Whereas a relationship with Jesus says, I know there's nothing more for me to do because Jesus has done it all for me. He's worked his way down to me. It's Romans 5, 8, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the idea. And then Jesus says, and after we have Jesus in our life, when, when we follow God, we hunger and thirst after his righteousness, there's some things that will change in our life. And here's what they are. One of them is that we'll become more merciful, that we will give mercy because we've received mercy. That makes sense, doesn't it? We recognize what God has done for us. He forgave us much, so we should forgive others much. That we should be pure in heart. When's the last time that you got an award for that? Pure in heart, huh? That's a struggle in our culture to be pure in heart. Last week, Cody said we should be peacemakers. And I love what he talked about last week because I think it makes so much sense for us that the, the, the peacemaker is the one who makes peace. I mean, we got Thanksgiving coming around. I mean, it's, it's a few days away. There's some of you got in-laws. Others got outlaws coming to your house. It's going to be interesting. Um, some of you have already started talking amongst yourselves how we're just going to survive. Like, how are we going to make peace? And the idea is, is like, we're not... We're not going to bring up the elephant in the room. We're not going to talk. We're not going to have a discussion over the crazy cousin that's in the house that's visiting from Minnesota. We're not going to be talking about any of that. We're just going to make peace. And the goal is, is surely we can carve up some turkey, eat a little dressing and, and some cranberry sauce, and surely we can make peace for a couple hours. And that's not the goal of making peace. What he says, making peace is pursuing 
peacemaker, that Jesus pursued us. He makes peace. He reconciles us to himself so we should reconcile others to God. The goal is, is that even in a time when we're thankful, when we're gathered, that we would have hard conversations because they promote unity and peace even though you may sense division. It's about making people more like Jesus. And so the question is, if you're thinking about holidays coming up this week, how do you make people more like Jesus? How do you have conversations that honor the Lord? How do you set some time aside to say, you know what, we're gonna have a few moments where we, we, we play a game, we have great fellowship and we thank God for what he's done. That's the idea. Let's, let's make something of these moments together. And then Jesus, he throws a little bit of curveball. The very last thing, I mean, he didn't say, and now be joyful. And, hey, now go and sing and celebrate. And then he goes, the last one is, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Hold on, what? I mean, we were on kind of a pretty good path here. I mean, we were like, hey, pure in heart, peacemaker. And then voila, he goes, and blessed are the persecuted. And, and here's the deal. When he says, blessed are the persecuted, he says, you're persecuted for righteousness sake. Y'all got that? Underline that in your Bible or at least make a note of it. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want you to, to understand something. Before we can go much further in this message, you need to understand why believers are persecuted. So those who we claim to know God, love God, pursue God. The idea of Paul being persecuted, the idea of all the apostles being persecuted. I want to realize persecution is something that happens to you because of righteousness sake. The idea of righteousness sake is that you're pursuing God and his righteousness. So it means that it puts you in a place that is countercultural. So the whole series is the idea of upside down. So what we need to know is that that's the purpose of Jesus saying this. He goes, you would be persecuted for righteousness sake because people look at you and they perceive something different about you. And he says, those people, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So think about this. How many times do you think about persecution and you think about chastisement or you think about somebody, um, you know, in a sense doing something to you? Or a lot of times I think we categorize it in two other categories. Instead of chastisement or somebody saying something about us, we oftentimes think persecution comes as a result of, of foolishness or ignorance. Okay, so let me explain this to you real quick. So there are certain sins in our life um, that come as a result of what I would call ignorance, okay? Ignorance is when you have the apostle Paul in Acts chapter seven. Uh, we're gonna talk about it at the very end of the day for just a really brief moment, but he is there at the stoning of a guy named Stephen. Um, and he does that. He, he puts his stamp on it. He's there. He sees Stephen stoned and killed and he celebrates with all the other Hesed and loyal Jews. And he thinks, hey, I have done something good for God. In his zealousness, he has seen a man killed because he was a part of the way or this movement called Christianity that was taking place in the early days of the church. Well, Paul goes, you know what? That's a good thing. I'm proud of that. But later in Acts chapter nine, Paul's gonna have an encounter with God on the road to Damascus and he's going to awaken him to his ignorance. And later Paul would say, he goes, I did things early on that were ignorant. He goes, I did not know better. I thought I was honoring God and my zealousness, but I was killing men that were a part of the way. So he goes, I was killing Christians because I thought that they were some crazy cult, cultural sect, that they were something weird, some fanatics, and that they were talking about these really weird things. And they were doing like things like cannibalism. And I thought that was weird. 
And so he wanted to get rid of him. And then he has this encounter with Jesus. Jesus awakens him to who he is and to what he's done. He is persecuted. He goes, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's what Jesus asked him. He goes, why is it that you're going after people in my name? Don't you know who I am? I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that Abraham and Moses and Isaac all represented. I am the Messiah. And then his eyes are open and he goes, all the things I did were in ignorance. He goes, I didn't know better. Now, most of the things we do are not in ignorance, okay? Most of the things we do are what you call foolishness, okay? Now, what I mean by that is every now and then, okay, you'll hear somebody or maybe they'll put it on their Facebook page. I don't know. I try not to get on Facebook too much, so I hadn't seen one in a while, but maybe you have. Uh, And they'll say something, man, the enemy will not leave me alone. My car ran out of gas today. Hold on real quick. Do what? So you, the, the enemy won't leave you alone because you ran out of gas. So let me just give you real life instance in my life, okay? Kelly and I, we've recently sold our house. We're building another house. It has been a painfully excruciating process, okay? I get some rock delivered yesterday. It's about you know 20 tons of rock, big old, big old 18 wheeler. Guy calls me, he goes, hey man, can we get through to your pastor? And I'm like, absolutely, you can get through to my pastor. It's, it's dry enough. Uh, he gets about halfway through my pastor and this thing bogs down. And uh, I'm like, oh, great. You know, so here's a couple options. They're like, okay, you can just dump the whole load in your coastal pasture, uh, pasture or you can call a record. I'm like, well, we're calling a record. Okay, maybe 150 bucks, we'll have it out of there. Okay, $375 later, we've got this thing successfully pulled out of a pasture that is all rutted up. And you go, goodness, Lord, why would you do this to me? Now, I did not say that because I know better. But I know that people say that kind of stuff all the time. It's not any different than you buy a campfire and you see a log that's on fire. and You're like, okay, I think I can throw this log back into the fire and you burn your hand. Now, is that a God problem or is that a foolishness problem? So all the time, I think we look at our lives and we go, God, why are you letting all this happen to me? And here's the deal. Listen, hey, listen, Thanksgiving is around around the corner, but some of us need to be reminded. Things happen to us a lot of times in our lives because we are fools. We're fools. And just go, we make foolish decisions. And in our humanity, we think, you know what? This seems like a really good decision. And then 15 minutes later, we're like, oh man, that was a really bonehead move. So I don't know about you, but I've been collecting bonehead moves in the last couple of weeks. It just seems like, you know, I'm like, Lord, I get you own the cattle on a thousand hills. I mean, why not give me another few thousand dollars to blow on stuff like this, right? But you look at it and you go, it's easy in a sense to look and go, you know what, God, why would you let me do this? And it has nothing to do with God. It has to do with my foolishness. And so you've got sins in a sense that are ignorant, like Paul persecuting the church because he didn't know better. He was awoken to it and he goes, I'm not gonna do that anymore. Then you've got sins of foolishness, which are just foolish decisions. Sometimes we do it with our words. Sometimes we do it with our deeds, et cetera. But then you have this idea of persecution. And persecution never comes as a result of your sin, but as a result of your righteousness. And so don't confuse those things. You look and you go, man, the enemy just won't leave me alone. Well, listen, let me explain something to you real quickly. The enemy, that is Satan, Diabolos, the accuser, he is limited. He cannot be at two geographic places at one time. He cannot both accuse you and accuse me at the same time. 
He's limited. God is not limited. God is all powerful. He's all knowing. He's everywhere. Satan does not have the power of God. Why? Because Satan was created. He was a created being. He is limited in scope and size and sequence. And so what we need to know is this, is that people who follow him can have a a large grasp and they can do different things. And so that's both demonic and it's also people that sin. All that to say is this, is do not confuse hardships, suffering, some of the different things that are brought on as a result of ignorance or foolishness as the same thing as persecuted suffering and the things that James, the half-brother of Jesus says, consider it pure joys, my friends, when you face trials of many kinds. They're two different things. And so he's talking about persecution. What is persecution? Persecution is when you're insulted for the name of Christ. I think Peter says it in a way that we can all understand. And he does a really good job of distinguishing between what persecution is and what foolishness and ignorance is. And so here it is in 1 Peter chapter four. I'll put it for you up on the screen on both campuses so you can see it. In verse 14 of 1 Peter 4, it says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, then you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Because if you're insulted because of righteousness, that's a, one, it determines that you're a believer in Christ, that you're a child of God. So you're being insulted because of righteousness sake and because of Christ. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So he goes, it's one thing for you to say, you know what, I'm being accursed or I'm being persecuted or I'm suffering because you're a murderer or you're a thief or you do evil or you're a meddler. Okay, so when you make foolish decisions, there are consequences, right? For a murderer, you're thrown in jail. In some cases, you're killed. There are lots of different distinguishing marks that happen as a result of our sin. But he goes, when you are a Christ follower, it's persecution. And what should you do? You should understand that the God of glory rests upon your life and you should be thankful in that moment. And so he's distinguishing that for us. And he says, but if, you're, if you suffer as a Christian, hey, don't be ashamed, but let you glorify God in that name, in the name of Christ. Why? Because of what he's doing in your life. And so let me help you understand, in the first century, the church was being persecuted, not because of their ignorance, not because of their foolishness, not because of their sin, but because of the marks of righteousness in their life. People were able to look at them and say, there is something different. But you remember and you recall the words of Jesus. Jesus says, hey, you wanna follow me? He goes, deny yourself, take the cross and follow me. And he goes, if you're gonna lead, if you're gonna, uh, if you're gonna have life in the next life, then you gotta lose it in this life. And you need to be willing that you would leave family, mother, brother, father, sister, anyone to follow me. So Jesus upping the bar. And he goes, you need to know that it's not about Judaism, it's about Jesus. It's about following me. And so he goes, deny yourself, take the cross. And so as people did that, then I want you to realize people began to persecute the early church. And here's why because of the words of Jesus, because of the statements that Jesus called them to. What were they? You remember Jesus saying something. He goes, hey, um, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. You remember what he talks about? He's reclining at the table and he goes, I want you to take, and I want you to eat this bread. And I want you to remember that it's my broken body. and It's the blood of Christ. I want you to take it. I want you to eat like it's my flesh. And he says, hey, here's, here's the blood of Christ. And, and here's here it is, his representation that my blood is poured out. I want you to take it. I want you to drink of it, all of you. And so the early church is doing these things, Acts chapter two, they're gathering together, they're praying together, they're reading the word together. They have become a family of believers together. And then you've got people on the outside looking in and they're going, listen, you guys are a bunch of cannibals. 
I mean, you're talking about eating the flesh of your, of your leader, drinking his blood. Are you serious? That's disgusting. You can't do that. That's morbid. And they begin in a sense to help persecution at them because of them remembering the broken body and the blood of Christ. We would do that. And we would even, a lot of us would say, no, that's one of the most important things about the church, what we call the Lord's Supper. They would begin to persecute them because they uh, would say harsh things about them because they left their families, many of them, their mothers, their brothers, their fathers, their sisters, all to be together in this family. They were fanatics. They were in a sense uh, over the top. People thought they were weird. They were strange. They, they were, they're, they're not worthy of our culture. And so they began to literally chase them out of town. They would say they're immoral because they would have these things that were called love feast, agape feast. What an agape feast was is Acts chapter two. It was them gathering together. We have these two, they're called journey groups. And so what it is, is you get together and you love one another. You practice the one another scriptures. You love one another, you serve one another, you bear each other's burdens, Galatians 6 you begin to care for each other as you have need. And so as outsiders begin to look in that, they say, oh, I get it. You, you have these love feasts. Oh, a love feast. I get it. Um, what do y'all do at these love feasts? Oh, I, oh, you read the Bible together. Oh, okay, yeah. It's interesting. None of y'all can read. There's not really even a Bible. I bet y'all are doing other things. And they begin to, ch- to, to charge them about having orgies and factions and dissensions and different things at these studies as they got together. They'd say, you're weird, you're strange, you're cannibals who've left everything to become these fanatics. Not only are you weird, but now you have love feast together. Oh, I bet those are exciting. Can I come and be a part of a love feast? And the culture is beginning to really implode uh, and, and really force the church. They, there was charges of treason and all these different things. Things because they were pursuing righteousness and the world couldn't understand it. You might ask yourself, well, why could the world not understand it? And here's what I want to realize. The world doesn't understand anything when it comes to what God wants. I'm not sure we do. Let me give you a little grasp of it. In the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Shortly thereafter, he created mankind. Mankind, you and I, meaning to be the vice region of God. You had God over all things. He was supreme. He's the creator, the recreator. He's the establishment of all that we see and know, even the things that we don't see and know. He's made. We are made in his image, for his glory, for his good. We're the vice region of God. Then he says, and I want, you to, I want you to multiply. I want you to fill the earth. I want you to subdue it. Everything belongs under you. And so you have God, you have man, and then you have birds of the air, fish of the sea. You've got living creatures that move along the ground and man is over it all. He's the authority of it all. We recognize God and his supremacy. We can come and go in his presence. We enjoy all that he has made, all that he is, all we have seen. We realize that all creation points back to God and we roll over it all. And then one day we said, you know what? I bet. God's trying to, I bet he's trying to keep us from something. I bet this good God is trying to to keep a man down. And we rejected it. We rejected God and the notion of supremacy of God in our lives. And we took and we flipped everything upside down. Matter of fact, it used to be God and man and all created things. But now it's not just creation of created things, but those are the top. It's created things, Romans 1 at the top. It's man's ideas. It's reptiles. It's birds of the air, fish of the sea, all those at the top. Then there's man. And then somewhere down at the bottom, there's God. Do you see how it's flipped? And Jesus goes, listen, when we can get everything back in the right order, where you recognize who God is, where mankind is, that all creation comes under them, he goes, people are going to think you're weird. 
People are going to think you're strange. Why? Because you're not, you're not chasing after the same things that the world is. You're not, cre- you're not chasing after images or created things, but you're chasing after the God who created all of those things. And so these people are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, it says, here's what it means. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You got it? The question is, is, well, how do you, what do you mean by persecuted? And I want you to realize there's different levels of persecution. So here it is. I think most of us in this room have, have probably faced one, maybe two levels of persecution. Verse 11 says, blessed are you when others revile you. Then it says, and then persecute you and then utter all kinds of evil against you and falsely on my account. Now, when you read that at first, you're like, okay, I get it. I, I'm persecuted all the time. My coworkers all the time persecuting me. They're always calling me a holy roller and a Bible thumper and all they're asking. I even got family. My mom, all she asks me all the time, when are you gonna quit going to that church all the time? Seems like you're there every single night. Is that all you do is live for the church? Blah, blah, blah. You think, man, they're persecuting me. Now, let me give you persecution. Here's what it means. Revile. The word in the Greek revile literally means to insult or to make harsh remarks about or to take cheap shots. I think we've experienced this one in our culture. I think that happens on a regular basis. And so here's what it means, a cheap shot. It's when somebody calls you something. For instance, I've heard it just in the last two weeks. Man, you shouldn't go to Stone Point. All they are is a bunch of watered down people. They're not telling you the whole gospel. All they do is they tickle ears that you'll come. And I'm like, surely they hadn't been in person, right? Um, And so, but that's just a cheap shot. Now, here's the deal. I try hard to not take cheap shots. And the reason why is because at the end of the day, if you're taking a cheap shot of someone else, you're not revealing righteousness, are you? I mean, at the end of the day, in the goal for us to be peacemakers, in the end of the day, for us to be people who exemplify the character of God, listen, we don't do ourselves any favors when we take cheap shots at other people. And you're not taking cheap shots at other people just because of church. You do it because of your job. You do it because of your children. You do it because of your coaches. You do it all these different things. We can always take a cheap shot. And here's why. When you take a cheap shot and somehow, some way, it elevates you in your mind and it makes you a little bit better than someone else. And here's the deal. We are classic cheap shoppers, cheap shotters. We love to take cheap shots. We hate it when people do it to us. And it happens all the time. We do it in lots of different ways. We'll do it with our words. We'll do it with our deeds. We'll do it on Facebook. We'll do little one-liners. And we cheap shot all the time. But here's the bottom line is anytime that we take a cheap shot because of somebody's righteousness or their pursuit of their fanatical nature of following Jesus, he goes, you are in line with those who persecute. And so people are persecuted because of Jesus for righteousness sake all the time. And it could be the little thing that rolls off your back. Hey, you're too committed to your church. Hey, you're a holy roller. Hey, you're a Bible thumper. Oh, you really want your kids to be raised that way? Oh, is that all you're, whatever. Then it goes to another level and they persecute you. So there's a difference between reviling you or taking a cheap shot at you and persecuting you. The idea of persecuting is the Greek word that says, hey, they're gonna run you out of town. The idea is it moves from a, a little cheap shot to now it's time for you to go. Do you understand? So there's cheap shots happening all the time. We're used to that, people reviling us. But the next one, the next level is when you would chase someone out of their town for righteousness sake. Now, listen, the best example I can give you is not a good one, but here's, I'll, I'll give you one, okay? My dad was a football coach. Um, we were run out of town once and almost run out of town a second time, but he chose to stay, okay? But the bottom line is this. Here's how it starts. Coach, 
get a better offense. Coach, your defense is terrible. Coach, you should have punted the ball. And you got all these coaches, right? And it's just insult, 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 right? Cheap shot, cheap shot, cheap shot, okay? And you go, I never do that. Yeah, you do. You do it about Jason Garrett all the time right now, okay? (laughs) So bottom line, that's how it starts. Then it moves from cheap shot to now, there's a different level of, now let's run them out of town. Let's get them out of here. We want somebody new. Now, listen, we're talking about coaching, et cetera, okay? The bottom line is at the end of the day, we're not talking about coaching here. Jesus is talking about the crown of glory. He's saying, listen, there are gonna be people that persecute you. They're gonna take cheap shots at you because of your faithfulness, because of your fanaticism to the kingdom. And he goes, and there's gonna be a point where they're gonna wanna run you out of town. That's persecution. They're going to chase you. They're gonna stone you. They're gonna try to kill you. They'll tar and feather you. They'll put you in a boiling pot, a cauldron of oil. They'll do whatever they can to to charge you with incredible crimes that you didn't commit. They'll say falsities about you. They'll lie about you. They'll deceive you. They'll not just revile you. They'll persecute you. And then they'll utter all forms of evil against you. And the idea of that is they'll do it falsely on an account. The idea is that they'll charge you with a crime that they have no proof of being able to convict you for. The idea is, is they'll say such harsh things about you. They'll bring deception among the masses. They'll charge you with something falsely. They can't prove it, but it doesn't matter. They're reviling such hateful, evil words about you that people will believe it. They hop on the bandwagon. It goes to insulting cheap shots, and then they want to run you out of town. Listen, here's the alarming thing is that it's happening now in our culture. This isn't a thing of the past. This isn't a thing of the future. It's happening now. It's happening in such ways that we can't even see it because of party lines. The one unique thing about our culture and about our society is that someone is innocent until proven guilty, that you don't get to say falsities, revile them, lie about them, chase them out of town merely on what you think could have happened because someone else said it. There's gotta be proof. There's gotta be tangible evidence, right? That's the idea. Jesus is going, there's gonna be a day where there's no tangible evidence and people are gonna say falsities about you. They're not gonna recognize anything and they're gonna do it on account of me. That's what he's talking about. You go, well, yeah, I know it used to happen. Yeah, it used to happen. Uh, there was a guy named uh, Nero. He was the emperor of Rome when uh, it burned in uh, around 70 AD. Um, he blamed the burning uh, in his out-of-mind state on Christians. He had them persecuted, destroyed, fed some of them lines, had others burned at stake, even in his own backyard. He lit them on fire simply so it would illuminate throughout the city and they could see them. Uh, you had other guys. The next nine emperors that would follow him would all persecute, uh, persecute Christians. The one who followed him right after uh, was the guy who put John in a pot of oil and he tried to, to burn him to death. He escaped and ultimately was exiled to the island of Patmos. Uh, the 10th emperor, a guy, a guy named Diocletian, he was the, uh, the 10th emperor in that line of following Nero uh, in about early 300s is the one who um, destroyed churches, burned all Bibles that he could get his hands on and tried to destroy the church at whole. This persecution was not new to the early church, but you thought, okay, well, at some point, maybe they could escape it. Well, listen, you never escaped it because the bottom line, Jesus goes, listen, people are going to hate you because they hated me. In the 1500s, there was a queen who uh, she followed her, her dad, was uh, Henry VIII. Her name was Mary I, Queen of England. 
uh, became known as the title of Bloody Mary. The reason she was called Bloody Mary was not because she made a really good drink, okay? Uh, she, made, uh, she was called a Bloody Mary because in her time, she killed well over 300 people, 284 of them, though she burned at stake alive. In the 1500s, she uh, was doing it all in the name of fanaticism. Uh, she thought that there were too many Protestant move, movers, shakers, that were going to overthrow, in a sense, usurp the authority of the Catholic Church. And so because she was the Queen of England and everything she said went, she killed 284 men and women. Among them, three of them that would go to the stake in November of 1855. Um, a guy named... Uh, John Webb, George Roper, and Gregory Park. Uh, and, and Fox's Book of Martyrs, you can read all of these different accounts, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. But this is said about Roper. Roper was a young man of fresh color, courage, and complexion. The other two that were with him, which would have been Webb and Park, were somewhat more elderly. They were all going in white linen with their gowns on, but there was Roper that was, he was coming to the stake. He put off his gown, he fetched a great leap. So soon as the flame was about him, they said that Roper put out both arms from his body like a rood, and so steadfast, continuing in that manner, not plucking his arms in till the fire had consumed them and burnt them all the way off. He goes to his, his death with his arms out, clenched, and he never winced. It says even then in historian accounts that he leapt with great joy. And you go, how in the world can you leap with great joy in the midst of persecution? And, and this isn't just charges and somebody saying something about you. This isn't just reviling. This isn't a little Facebook deal. This isn't just running people out of town. This is literally taking people and hanging them on a stake alive and burning them. And you go, how in the world could he leap with joy? And here's how, look at it. In verse 12, Jesus says, I want you to rejoice and be glad. Do what? Rejoice and be glad? Listen, my day was almost ruined over an 18-wheeler stuck in my pasture in $375. And you and I, you think about it, how would you go to the stake like a George Roper? Are you going with, with a whimper, with a wince? Are you going with your, your head downtrodden? Are you going in fear? Are you going wondering why, God, are you doing such a thing? I mean, even the words of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, God, could there be any other way that this cup could pass from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. Even just hanging on the cross, Father, why have you persecuted me? We cry about foolish things, about ignorant things, about a few insults. And Jesus is going, no, listen, when you're insulted, when you're reviled, when people utter harsh things about you, when they persecute, when they run you out of town for my sake, great is your reward. So hey, take heart, take joy, rejoice and be glad. Why? Because the latter part of verse 12, for your, your reward is great in heaven. Listen, you can only get through persecution if you know there's something expecting in the future. You only get through stuff if you know that you are going to receive your reward. It's like a day laborer in, in the Greek. It's a day laborer. You know that you work, you're, you're going to get paid. That if you do what you said, that they're going to pay you. And he says, so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're in good company. Jesus goes, listen, blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. 
Why? Because you're going to get the crown of life. There's a reward. Just keep your eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of my faith, of your faith, the Lord Jesus. And you might ask yourself, well, okay, that sounds really easy for you to say. Like, okay, you're, you, want, if, you want me to handle it in persecution. Well, here's the deal. Why? Because in Acts chapter uh, 7, Stephen, though he was being stoned, he understood and he handled it. Matter of fact, I want you to show you just a couple of verses. It says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged. This is Acts chapter 7, verse 54. And they ground their teeth at him. So Stephen was preaching a sermon to him. He told them about all the things they didn't do and why they missed it and how they should have paid attention to Jesus and all this. They get mad. They grind their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried aloud with a voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city. You catch that? They cast him out of the city. They chased him in persecution and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they were standing, or they were stoning Stephen and he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. That's persecution. And they run him out of the city. They stone him. They strip him. They jeer, they make fun at him. Most likely, a lot of times, they would cover their faces so they couldn't even see where the rock was coming from and they would just get hit from every side. What I love about this is not the fact that he was stoned or that you get the story of that. What I love about it is that there's a detail in there that all of our Bible recounts that you'll never see again. And that is that Jesus got up off his throne for Stephen. Everything in your Bible says, and Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. But in this case, Stephen, in his persecution, looks up and he sees what? Jesus standing on his behalf. I don't know about you, but I think that's what it means. That we would live so faithfully in the midst of his righteousness and his grace that no matter what people say about you, what they do to you, how often they chase you out of town, the insults, the lies, the deceptions they say about you, they would see your good deeds. They would glorify God on the day of his approaching. That's the goal. And that Jesus would be well pleased. You might ask the question, okay, that makes a lot of sense, but how, how can I really settle into that? And listen, here's how you settle into it. You ready? The only way you settle into any of this is you recognize who you are in Christ. Let me just remind you who you are in Christ. Early on in our Bible, it says that, that we are created in the image of God, the image of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Genesis 1, 27. It says that he formed life in us in Genesis chapter two, verse 17, and he breathed life into our nostrils and there was man. And then man created a suitable, suitable helper. Uh, God created a suitable helper for this man named Adam. He called woman, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Genesis chapter one, 39 says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Matthew gives the account. And he says that we are so precious that even the sparrows of the sky don't compare to the, the glory that's been revealed in us. And as humanity, that he, he knows every hair on our head, according to Matthew, that he knows everything about us, that intimately he cares for us. But the scripture also says that in Genesis chapter three, we thought that we knew the glory of God better than he did. And we decided that we were going to sin against him. We usurped his authority because we wanted to be supreme. And because of that, our sins uh, were made known. Our hearts were darkened to foolishness, to ignorance. And because of that, we've been separated from God ever since. We have sinned over and over. Jeremiah 17 says, our hearts are deceitful. 
Romans chapter 3, 23 says, we have all sinned, we fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23 says, the result of that sin means that we are dead in our trespasses, in our sin, we're separated from God forever. And here's the good news, that we were created in the image of God and broken because of our sin. God says, there's a rescue plan. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, that even though while you were yet sinners, Christ still died for you. That he came, what did he do? He came to make you an ambassador of Christ. He came to take you out of your sin and out of your darkness and bring you into the glory that should be revealed in Christ. He took you out of the old and into the new. It's, it's 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that the old would be gone, that you're a new creation in Christ. The old's gone, the new has come. And then he makes us reconcilers to God. He makes us ambassadors for him. We are his, chi- we are his children. We are to love him, to serve him, that faithfully we could know his forgiveness of sin if we'll simply believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that he is Lord, Romans 10, 9 and 10. And when we do that, we have a new life. We have victory. Peter says, we've been called out of darkness into the wonderful light of Christ. We are a priesthood of believers, that we have all authority to approach the throne of God, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He stood in our place. He is the substitute for us. He is all that we need. He is our high priest. He is our king. He is the one who stands in our place. We can now approach God as if he is our own father. And he calls us into this family. And the gospels tell us that he is our father and that we have brothers and sisters And that even though we might be forsaken in this world, that you need to know that you will not be forsaken in the next. So be a good cheer. The Lord is with you wherever you go. Hey, don't worry, for the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm with you. You remember he said, I want you to go and I want you to be my witnesses. I want you to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. And I want you to baptize people in my name. I want you to teach them everything I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. I don't know about you, but that's what I signed up for. And the question is, what's slowing you down? May we pursue righteousness together and love and joy and peace and righteousness with a pure heart devoted to a God who was selfless and sending his son for us so that his church and his kingdom might flourish throughout the world and that we would be a part of it. Even if people insult you, persecute you, revile you, say foolish insults about you that even aren't true, would you press on and keep your eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith, the Lord Jesus, the one who says, I understand what you're going through. Because though he was accused of doing wrong on six different accounts, trials before different places in Rome, he never sinned. And he died an excruciating, painful death and persecution, though he was righteous. And so may we pursue him. Let me pray for us. God, we love you and we thank you for today. We thank you that you are the God of glory, that you are desiring to transform us into your image. I pray, God, that we would recognize that one day you will come and you will receive us and it'll come like a twinkling of the eye that the last trumpet will sound. And one day you'll appear and we will be with you and we will be like you. And we will see you as you are and there will be no more surprises. We will see of your faithfulness and your goodness. And so Lord, until then, help us just to stay close to you. Help us to abide in you, to be a part of the vine. May we live in Christ because we know that to die for you is gain, as Paul said. And so God, I pray that you would, Uh, be with us and that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that we would fear no evil for thy rod and thy staff bring us comfort. Lord, may we not be afraid for you are with us wherever we go.
And so Lord, thank you that you called us, your creation, to be saved and to be valued in your image for your purposes. And so God, help us to live in that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.